Hey guys, welcome to the Seven Figure Box podcast. My name is Andrew Frezza, and I have John Briggs of Insight Tax today. Welcome to the show, John. Thanks, Andrew. Um, can you start, John? Tell us a little bit about your background. I know one of the things I really like about you is you have this very unique combination of the accounting background, but then you're also now in the gym owner side as well. So can you give us a little insight into that? Yeah, sure. So my background, um, I was fortunate to go to a really great university for taxes. They're known for their accounting and tax program. Um, and that kind of started my career off go? at BYU. They've okay. uh, Brigham Young University. They've been in the top three for the last decade when it comes to accounting. And um, what they're really good at is teaching you how to be conservative <laughs> and how they train you to be a great employee for another accounting firm. And okay. when I was at when I was at another accounting firm, so I worked at Deloitte. Um, that was my first accounting job, and I just hated the model. They it's it's similar to how traditional law firms are set up, where you bill in increments of like six minutes. And um, as an accountant, you actually don't get uh, promoted unless you have good billable hours, but you don't control your workflow. And so if you don't have work to do because it hasn't been assigned to you, you take your time, your customers end up paying a lot. So I hated that model, ended up through the series of a couple firms, ended up on my own. Um, and through that process, uh, was introduced to CrossFit. And I also read the book, The Pumpkin Plan by Mike Michalowicz, which is a great read if no one's read it yet. And it talks about how to basically find your top clients and how do you duplicate them. And I did his exercises in the book and I realized, holy crap, I have like 25 CrossFit clients and they're actually fun to talk to. They're enjoyable. They know they don't know this stuff. It's not like dealing with, you know, dentists or doctors or sometimes attorneys where they, they're really smart. So they have to know this stuff, but they don't actually know this stuff. CrossFit owners were like straight up. Yep. No idea what I'm doing. So there's a, there's more satisfaction there. Um, mm. And then after doing it for a few years, we started, we could see some signs like, oh, this is what makes a profitable gym. This is what makes a gym not profitable. We could see some trends. And the gym I was going to, I could see some of those negative trends. And so <laughs> I just, I reached out to the owner and I said, hey, um, I, I really like coming here. I have a good routine and I don't want to lose that. But I have a feeling you're not making any money. And I'm worried you're going to go out of business. Uh, and I gave him some suggestions on what I would do. Uh, and he, instead of telling me what he should have said was, hey, thanks for the suggestions, but, you know, like, stay in your lane, bro. Because mm. um, he didn't know who I was other than just a member. He, and he invited me to lunch, and we talked about it. And uh, he's like, yeah, you're right. I have actually tried to sell the gym three times now. I'm dying. Like financially, I can't afford to continue to fund the loss and because the previous owners put him in a pickle with some lease commitments. Mm -hmm. And uh, it just worked out. He's like, would you maybe consider coming on as owner? So I have. And I'm telling you, Andrew, it's been a game changer for us in the firm because it's one thing to understand a gym on paper. It's another thing to understand emotionally mm -hmm. the things that have to go on. Um, when you tell a gym owner, which we have, hey, you need to add another revenue stream because just your group, group training alone probably isn't going to get you to where you want to go. Uh, 
I now know what that means to add a nutrition service. I know how much work goes into that. And so yeah. we can be a lot more empathetic with them when it's taking them a couple months to get that done instead of, I don't understand. It's been a couple of days. Why didn't you have it? Why haven't you done it yet? You, what do you mean? Your coaches don't want to do personal training? Like on paper, it makes sense. You didn't realize that there's a human aspect and some coaches don't actually like doing personal training, but you still need it. So, okay, there's a sign. Like let's maybe find different coaches. Uh, anyway, so it's been, it's been so eye-opening to experience it, getting my hands dirty versus just reading it on paper. Yeah. And I think, I mean, the field you're coming from the accounting side, it's, it's a, it's a field pretty much known for not really understanding that human side. So it's cool that you have that element, um, not to try to knock you too much, no, <laughs> but you do cool. a great job of it, which I love. Um, the, the stereotype the, for accountants exists for a reason. Yeah. <laughs> so what's, what is your day-to-day, -day, um, involvement in the gym look like today? And when, when was that you stepped in on the ownership side? Uh, it was July of 18 is when we okay. officially signed the contract. Um, so we both have other full-time jobs. Um, obviously, I have the tax firm and I'm writing a book and all that stuff. So we have hired a GM. Mm -hmm. um, we have a weekly meeting, it seems like. One is with the GM. The next week is with coaches. The next week is with the GM. Uh, and then me and my business partner meet once a week uh, to go over stuff. But uh, from a day-to-day -day standpoint, we, we have the GM handle all that. So many different things. I want to actually dive in before we go too much further. I want to talk about the how you use the pumpkin plan to find more CrossFit clients. Um, okay. I just think that's a unique aspect. And how did you attack that? You read the book and you're like, okay, I like working with CrossFit gyms. Did you have a turning point of like seeing that take off from how you attacked it? Yeah, great. So, um, Mike, in all of his books, is really good at providing really easy-to-follow steps on to do whatever he's teaching in his books. So in the pumpkin plan, he even has a link you can go to and you can download this spreadsheet where you list all your clients, and then he has criteria on how you grade them. Now, I get this because the, one of the first things we did when I bought in, I said, we need to pumpkin plan our gym. Mm -hmm. So we need to grade our clients. And I can tell you the coaches we had at the time hated that. They thought I was some sort of like robot Nazi type of person with no emotions. Like how can you, you can't just like grade people. They're all <laughs> humans. It's like, okay, I think we can all agree that not all of our members are created equal. Yeah. It's just in all businesses, right? Like this guy's a huge pain in the butt. He always talks back. Oh, this, this member, Susie, is super awesome. She does exactly what I say. She's cheerful. You know, it's the same thing with the firm, with accounting firms. And so we rated it based on the criteria that he provides. Things like, um, I mean, revenue. How much revenue do you make off the client? Mm -hmm. How much time are you putting into them? But he also has you grade them on a cringe factor. So I might have a client who pays me a lot of money. You might have a client who, like, pays for personal training, yeah. which is a you know, one of the higher rates that we can get as gym owners, but he could be a real pain in the butt. And so when he calls you, it's that cringe factor, like, Oh, do I want to pick up the phone? Cause this guy always has something. It's just not a pleasant experience. Yeah. So you have to take that into consideration. And so after you look at the different elements that uh, you're filling out on this chart, you can tie them together. Like, Oh, 
I make a good amount of money for my time investment with them. I don't have any cringe factor with these people. I actually enjoy talking to them. So that's how we got to the CrossFit gym owner. And then from there, our first step was let's start honing uh, the majority of our marketing messages to gym owners. Because before that, it was just across the board. Entrepreneurs was who we were targeting. Mm-hmm. I can t- niching down and committing to like these top seed clients that you identify. It's actually kind of scary because there's that fear that uh, the FOMO fear of missing out. Yeah. Oh, but man, if, if I only go in on micro gyms, is, is the realtor going to know that I can help them? Is the mechanic going to know I'm going to help them? Because at that moment you don't realize I don't need the realtor or the mechanic. There's enough gym owners in the world for me to provide a good living and a company and a good yeah. environment for my people. Um, it's the same when it comes to gym membership as well. Um, but then you anyways, end up still getting some of those people as well. They still come to you, right? We still get them. We still get client referrals. I mean, because we started off as a non-CrossFit like focused or non-micro gym focused um, tax firm. And so I have, yeah, we have tons of clients who are just whatever, manufacturers, realtors, construction guys, salesmen, door-to-door sales companies, all that stuff. With this podcast, um, I get a lot of, I mean, I really hit things from a very CrossFit-specific point of view, and I get a lot of fitness businesses that are not CrossFit, but then I also get a lot of our gym members that listen to it, or old friends, or friends of friends now that have passed along the podcast that are just entrepreneurs themselves, or want to someday open up a business, and you know, not too much has come about from that, but that stuff translates and people find it fascinating. They find it interesting and it, it's almost, it makes your job easier to niche down and then it still actually opens up a lot of opportunities. Yeah. Uh, Mike's had a few books on it. One of the ones he talks about is, uh, they're called Uggs, those boots. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they so come he, out in Florida when we hit 70, which we hit this week. So they, they come out. Yeah, 70. <laughs> oh my gosh. It's unbelievable. <laughs> like 30 degrees here. Um, yeah. So Uggs actually did that model. What exactly what you just described, they found the surfer market and the surfers loved it. And then all of a sudden it just took off and celebrities started wearing it. The surfers then kind of were like, Hey, screw you. Like we thought you were an authentic brand, mm-hmm. but yeah, niche to masses is a much more successful model than masses to niche. Mm-hmm. Um, and we've realized we finally got to the point like this year, more than 50% of our new clients that are coming in are gym owners in the past it like every year, the percentage keeps growing as we further commit to going all in into the gym industry and the fitness people, because what you mentioned, yeah, it's not just CrossFit, like the principles that you teach, um, and that you're sharing with how you're running your gym apply whether it's a yoga studio uh you know spin class what like whatever it's the same stuff like you got to evaluate your coaches and you want to provide a good customer experience and you got to look at the bottom line like all the stuff applies to everybody can you take us uh further into i love that you did the grading system for the members did you ever get your coaches to buy in and then um what are some actions that you took based on doing that yeah, so um, we we did eventually. I had to in person in a meeting, like basically surprise them with the topic because 
they weren't responding to my emails about it. And I said, look, here's what we're trying to do. We're just trying to say and admit there are certain members that when you have them come in, you enjoy seeing them. All we're trying to do is figure out how can we get more of them? That's it. We're not going to kick out the other people who you don't enjoy. We, we just, this is all we're trying to do. And they're like, oh, okay. Because so, then I explained how the marketing works. And if we understand the people we enjoy, we can understand their demographics, their interests, and we can put a better message out to them. Um, so we identified about seven. And then we had our GM interview them and just ask them questions like, what do you like about our gym? What do you like about fitness? What are things you don't like about the industry? Uh, and, and we got a lot of good answers that helped us. I mean, to some degree, helped us hone our marketing message. Well, did you end up videoing any of that stuff or using it for marketing or it was mainly just Intel? No, I, in hindsight, yeah, it would have been better because we could have got video testimonials at the same time. Yeah. But no, no, it, it's a learning process for all of us, right? So I no, I wish yeah. I did for sure. I love, I love the, the cringe factor idea because, yeah, when you're trying to get coaches to buy into this idea, it can feel a little bit like robotic or, you know, very, very inhuman to be grading people. But we all know that feeling of that member that just rubs us the wrong way. And when you can see that overlap with the same member affecting the entire team that way, it makes it very clear that, yes, there are people that clearly make this a better experience for us as coaches and owners and some that make our job a lot harder. Yeah. And what's interesting, too, about the interviews, um, we actually identified some of them had cringe factors with some of our coaches. Mm -hmm. So it's like, oh, this particular coach, he's kind of like Jekyll and Hyde. One day he's really happy. But man, you can tell him when he's not on and you immediately kind of want to turn around and not go through the workout. So there's a lot of insights you can get by doing these interviews with the clients you enjoy the most. And we've, I mean, that coach is no longer part of our gym anymore because it wasn't good for the environment we, tr we were trying to provide. That's great. And that's great that you're getting, you've already distilled that feedback to these ideal people. Because one of the things that I find is that it's very hard to just sift through the feedback or the noise that you get from members. And a lot of times the people that are the loudest are those, those cringe type people. Those are the people that... <laughs> you least want to keep around. Um, but then, you know, because they're the loudest, it's hard not to ignore that it's, or to ignore that. It's hard to kind of stay in your lane and stay on your path when you're like, you know, yes, this is feedback I've heard from a couple people, but you know, as much as you know, like in your heart that maybe these people aren't ideal until you've really defined it and gotten in, inundated with a ton of feedback from those really great people, it's hard to weigh that appropriately. Yeah, uh, Chris Cooper, he calls it the loud minority. Like, you have got to be aware of them. And honestly, I didn't understand it until being a gym owner. Because from a tax firm, I don't get clients coming up to me and be like, hey, you know what, I think you should run your business this way. Have you considered doing this? But in the gym space, people do not give gym owners enough credit for the crap they have to put up with. I have never had that this many members come and say, like, I got a suggestion. I know how this can be better. Like, oh, yeah, really? I mean, we give gym owners crap for shiny object, shiny object syndrome. But I think a lot of that's pushed on by these members that are constantly like, hey, you need it. Let's do it. A, let's do a pegboard. Let's buy some sandbags. Let's let's get some Atlas stones. What about adding this class here, even though it's not going to be profitable? Like, 
yeah, talk about unsolicited feedback. I've never seen it like this in any other industry. Yeah. Cool. Well, um, I want to talk a little bit about pricing. You, you've been on a unique viewpoint of seeing the books of a lot of different gyms. And, you know, my experience has been that a lot of gyms are underpriced. A lot of gyms we've seen in the area that on the outside appear to be doing decently well are going out of business, selling the gym, whatever it is. But we've seen a lot of the gyms shut down around us. And like I said, some of those are on the outside appear to be doing really well. And I think a lot of times it's a pricing issue. You mentioned this idea of not just relying on group classes. Um, but I also think to a certain degree, if our bread and butter core service is the group class, doesn't mean we can't offer other stuff, but that group class should get us to a certain point, right? Maybe it doesn't get us to, uh, you know, six figures as a gym owner, but it should get us to a certain point where we have that ability to pay ourselves, you know, a comfortable salary and work with that. So what are your thoughts on the pricing as it relates to like really the group membership side? Um, I think, first of all, it's really important not to price just based on how your next door neighbor is pricing. Um, and I, I, I see this not just, I mean, I see this everywhere. We have this imposter syndrome problem where, um, we feel like we're imposters. You know, the gym owner had some sort of noble reason as to why they wanted to go into gym ownership and it's never money. Um, and so because of that, it's hard for them to wrap their mind around that, yeah, the, what, the, what they're doing is noble, but they deserve to be compensated for it. So there's a mindset, I think, that for sure has to happen. Um, the other thing is, yeah, uh, too many people price based on what their neighbor's doing. They don't do enough research for what the market can bear. Um, it does vary city by city. I mean, in New York, we have some clients who have multiple locations in the Brooklyn area. I mean, they charge way, they charge an amount that I could never get away with here in Utah. Um, mm -hmm. But they also have expenses that, you know, <laughs> we don't have. Like, it's just, so you have to take all that into consideration. Um, I always recommend when it comes to pricing, they need a mentor. And not, that's not something we do. So just so people know, I'm not trying to plug our services for that. They need, they need a business mentor who, focuses on the business operation side of gyms. Um, someone like you who can help them get to the pricing that they should be at because they will always convince themselves they're worth less than what yeah. they really are. And they need the encouragement. Um, are there, are there numbers that jump out to you? Like you see a gym that's, that's running CrossFit as their primary service. You know, they're running a barbell you know they're going to have certain capacity, operational capacity issues because of the space required to do a barbell or rope climbs or muscle ups, uh, you know, things that require some really dedicated um, square footage. Do you have a number where you're like, you know, let's say roughly you got kind of like more of a small town, more of like a, a suburb area, and then you got like a big city um, kind of thing. Do you Can you just look at a gym, see their price? Like you go on their website to do a little recon on them you see their pricing you're like oh shit like do you know that number in your head based on this like crossfit versus more of a boot camp style class uh big city versus small um i i don't know an exact number no i i mean that'd be awesome maybe uh maybe zen planner will 
uh, let me access their data where I can look into that. Because um, I'd love to know a number. But um, normally, we find the pricing as the consequence of seeing other things. So rent expense and coaches expense, uh, we call it team member expense in the profit first methodology. Those two expenses are the two largest expenses. And yeah, if they're if those two expenses combined are, you know, 65 to 70% of the revenue, uh, that's, that's tough. Um, and we've seen yeah. scenarios like the gym I bought into those two expenses when I bought in 110% of revenue. Wow. What that means is our revenue couldn't even cover just those two basic necessity of expenses. Um, so what, what's uh, the ideal amount on that? You said, you start to get into dangerous territory at 65 to 70, but you have an ideal percentage that you're hoping people get to. Um, I just for those two, no, I mean, we, from a, I analyzed some financially fit gyms for the profit first book and the range, these gyms who are really financially fit 25% was the lowest average I saw for a team mm -hmm. member coach for a team member expense. And then up to 44%. That's a healthy range, I feel like. If yeah. you're if a gym owner's not in that range with team member expense, they gotta look at it. They might have too many classes, they might not have enough members in each class, which means they need to cancel classes. They might be overpaying. The gym owner might need to step back in to coach some classes, things like that. Um, when it comes to rent, we we look at overall just the operating expense generally because but rent is gonna be probably 80% of your operating expenses. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, especially if you're trying to lean out, there's not a lot of other expenses that we have to do to stay open. Um, and that will range from the size of their gym, anywhere from 35 down to 20% of, of their revenue. But okay. I mean, cool. yeah, I think, I mean, I think it's helpful enough where maybe some gyms can work backwards and say, okay, we know, we know our rent, we know roughly what, we hope to pay our coaches based on the number of classes we run and maybe they double that number. They want that number to be 50% combined of what total revenue is. And then they can double that number and say, okay, based on how many members we think we can realistically get with this many classes, we need to be at, at double that number. And, and what does that look like on a per person basis? Yeah. But the one thing you said, which is really critical, I don't think gym owners understand their operational capacity as well as they should. Yeah. I mean, legit, if you have a barbell in the workout, how many people can you fit in your space? If you don't have a barbell, how many legit people can you fit in your space? Because um, we've one of the benefits of the book is it's exposed me to a lot of other fitness methodologies, and a lot of them don't have barbells involved, so they can put a lot more people safely yeah. into a space. But based on your workouts, a gym owner needs to know what's the max number of people they can have in that class. Because at a minimum, now you can calculate what the max income I can have on group training is X amount. Yeah. And based on that, do I need to add other services? And what do those look like based on operational capacity being at max? Mm -hmm. Cool. Um, what are some of the key mistakes that you see gym owners making as it relates to numbers? What are the things that jump out to you first? Um, Generally not, not saving enough for taxes, man, that's a, that's a deadly one. We see a lot, uh, end of the year comes and they owe a tax bill. They don't have the cash. That's uh, tough. 
Um, another, I mean, you said when it relates to numbers, but I mean, really numbers are a consequence of behaviors. Okay. Uh, gym owners stepping out of classes too early as far as, I mean, I get it. We want to work on the business, not in the business. Uh, but sometimes the gym's not ready. They can't afford to pay another coach yet. Um, that's another one. Like, just try and to. I, I think I've heard you say fast. this on other on other shows, which is start paying yourself for those classes to figure out if you can actually then pay someone else to do yes. that. Literally, there's no other way for you to know if you're ready to step out of classes if you're not paying yourself. That's the common. I'm falling on my sword as a gym owner. Move. That's ah, okay. Like it, it's my obligation. I own the. I own the business. I'll. I'll just coach this class for free. No, 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 no. Don't do that. So, do you recommend that a gym owner, like, let's say, a gym owner is, like, they're break even. They got a little extra money, kind of a thing. They're not like, they're not in a great situation, but they're not in a bad situation either. But they haven't started to pay themselves for any of their roles. They're just kind of paying themselves what's there when it comes. Um, do you recommend that they go roll by roll and say, okay, I want to pay myself for classes. I'm doing programming still. Let me pay myself this for that. I still clean every once in a while. Let me pay myself that and like develop their wage based on all these different roles. So then they can go about delegating which ones based on that value. That's exactly what I recommend. Yes, because it's not just coaching classes, it's all those functions you talked about. Because at some point, they can take marketing off their plate if their gym is healthy enough. But they'll never know if they can afford to do that if they haven't paid themselves what they would pay somebody else to do it. Um, yeah, I mean, I get it, bootstrapping, look, there's $1,000 left over, that's what I get to pay myself. But the work that you did, you would have had to pay someone $3,000 to do that. And unless you take the time to know that, you don't know where your gap is. Um, so yeah, we definitely recommend breaking out the functions you do by role, putting a value to it, paying yourself at least what you're doing, like what you would have paid somebody else to do those roles. Okay, cool. So you said, I think the quote you said was like, numbers are a result of behaviors. Is that what you said? Or yeah. an indicator uh -huh. of behaviors? Cool. So with that, like, I feel like when someone's coming to you or thinking about working with an accountant, they're thinking about you as like either just like a necessary evil, like I got to get my numbers in order, or they think about you as like an expense, like, well, this is just another thing that's going to cost me money. So maybe this is a two, separate two questions, but like, how do you actually pay for yourself as a service? And then how does like, how does numbers actually make you run a better business, not just save you money, but like, how does it actually lead into running a better business? um as a whole okay so let's see if i can get those two questions <laughs> if i forget them just remind me pull me back in yeah. um so the the first one i'm already thinking about how do, you, how do you kind of pay for yourself how do you pay for yourself um was that the real question? How do you pay for yourself because they're you, you're talking you, about as, you as the accountant coming in if i'm going to oh. be working with john got like, it and I'm worried that, oh, it's just another expense. And I kind of put it okay. off for that reason. Um, but I know a good a good accountant can can save, you know, even more than they cost. Totally. All right. So, yeah, um, it's the same. So the way I look at it for the tax firm is the same. I think a gym owner needs to look at it for their clients. You're an investment, right? I mean, the idea needs to be 
whatever uh, my clients are paying, get better result in value than what they're paying me. That's what value exchange is. When you go to a store and you buy a hat for 20 bucks, the only thing we know for certain is that that hat is not worth $20. It's worth more to me than $20 as the buyer. That's why I'm willing to pay $20 for it. And it's worth less than $20 to the seller because he's willing to sell it for 20 because he's making a profit. So with that mm -hmm. value idea in mind, we, yeah. So from a, from our standpoint, we tell clients like, look, if I can't save you more in taxes or strategies than what you pay me, I'm not a good expense for you. I'm an expense and I'm not an investment. Um, yeah. Too many times because accounting is kind of approached as a necessary evil. They, they automatically just go in thinking negatively and accepting, oh, this is an expense. The truth is there's so much area in the tax code and strategies and proper like methodology, like cash flowing with profit first, that uh, there's additional value the gym owner can get from just the one expense. So like as a gym owner, if I have a member coming in and they're paying $130 a month for group training, I need to make sure that in their life that they're getting more than $130. Maybe eventually they can stop taking medications. Maybe that means they have better weekends and can have more fulfillment because they're physically able to be more active. Um, we definitely want to make sure that whatever we are in the service business, we've got to be an investment for people. Um, so that was your first question. The next one you had was, uh, yeah, how can how can knowing your numbers, uh, dialing in your numbers, or working with an accountant, how can that actually lead to not just like saving money, like because because you can find that and save it, but like actually running a better business? Yeah. Okay. So the way I look at it, and I have a full chapter on this in the book. Um, a lot of times, if you're talking to an accountant, a normal accountant would answer your question with. Well, it helps because you now know your fixed expenses versus your variable expenses. Those are the two most important expenses. Fixed expenses are the same every month. Variable is going to vary based on your income level. Um, common examples, rent is a fixed expense. Selling protein in my gym is a variable expense because if I sell 10,000 units in one month, my cost is higher versus if I sold 1,000 units. Well, I tell gym owners, you have complete permission to never remember those two phrases ever again because it's a complete, a complete waste of time and just total accounting jargon crap. The two types of expenses they need to be aware of are productive expenses and not productive expenses. Because, and I'll get, and this it will get to your question. Um, if I go through my expenses and I ask myself, is this expense legit? adding value to my members? Is it supporting a system that supports them? Like, is it actually productive for my gym to have this? Um, you keep it. And if it's not, you don't. By getting rid of not productive expenses, I have now increased my ability to bring on more productive expenses, which leads to better customer experience. Maybe there's something I can add to the workout and just increase it on my end like it's a cost I'm willing to take on because it's productive and that'll help with retention. Um, or maybe it's, man, I can add this feature to my workout. It gives a better experience for the members. And now I can actually charge more because I'm providing more value. Um, by having a gym that only has productive expenses, you've 
maximized your efficiency on your dollar spend, which then maximizes your ability to truly serve your members as best as you possibly can. Let's talk about the book, the new book. Um, you know, we, we talked about pumpkin plan. We didn't really talk specifically about profit first, but it's a fantastic book. And, uh, you know, it's, it's been extremely uh, instrumental in our business for uh, dialing in our financials. Why did you feel the need to make one specifically for micro gyms? Why do you feel like this, this was a book that needed to be written? Having done um, multiple, lots of assessments using Mike's Profit First, um, the original, every single time we had to tweak it. And every time we spoke to gym owners who hadn't done it yet, most of the time the reasoning, so and I'm talking about gym owners who are familiar with the Profit First concept and then chose not to implement it. Obviously, mm. there's a huge audience out there who doesn't even know that this system exists. So specifically with people who had the knowledge but didn't do it, one of the main reasons was, is, yeah, the percentage just didn't make sense. Therefore, the system really isn't for me. Um, and so I felt like, well, you know, with my background, we serve more micro gyms than any other accounting firm uh, in the country. We're also profit first professionals. There's some other profit first professionals who also niche in micro gyms. None of them are gym owners, though. Like, man, I really, I mean, the industry needs this because the system does work. They just need to realize how to tweak it. And now the book, Profit First for Micro Gyms, tells them specifically how Profit First relates to them as a gym owner. So now there's no more, well, how do I tweak the original study that Mike did, which was looking at, mm -hmm. you know, thousands of different varying industry businesses, a construction company, a software company. All I did was look at gyms, financially fit gyms. In fact, your gym was one of those um, mm -hmm. that we used in our analysis. And I appreciate you uh, taking the time to let me gather that data because it helps, right? Uh, people need to know what, what's possible. And so yeah. um, now we have a specific table with the specific categories that work for micro gyms and no one needs to guess how do I tweak this? Like, well, I've tweaked it for you. That's what the book is for. Yeah, I love that. And I think, I mean, Profit First reminds me of a book, Traction, as well. Very different. But I recommend that all gym owners go through those two books because even a poorly implemented Profit First and a poorly implemented, you know, core values and vision statement from Traction and there's so many things you could dial in with those two systems, but if you do 20% of it, it's still going to have a, a positive benefit on your business. So it's, it's frustrating to me, and I'm sure it is for you, that a lot of people are not implementing anything because it's not perfect. But hopefully this book that you've written will help more people take those steps. But um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's been so instrumental for us. I think one of the biggest lessons for us is like your money isn't really your money. You know, what you see in your account is not what you're actually, what you actually have at any given moment. You know, if you're in the middle of the year, you might have some year end expenses or, you know, you might be just coming up on a big equipment purchase. Hopefully you're not looking at that money in the account and then just deciding to do a big equipment purchase. But um, <laughs> what are your but thoughts? But you know, they are, you, you know, people are doing that. Oh, I know. <laughs> um, Sorry. What, what are your thoughts on that in terms of like 
the profit first system? Is that, is that what you really see as the big benefit of it? Totally. Um, one of the things I say in the book is if the only thing the book accomplishes is that the gym owner is willing to attempt to manage their cash flow, then it's a victory. Because what you just described, that bank balance decision making is not good. Um, it hasn't worked. It's not going to work. So why keep doing, hoping for change, doing the same thing, right? So what you said is so spot on. I've committed to my coaches. They're coaching the class. I owe them money. So when that money comes in, if $100 is deposited, I, that's not all mine. I've committed to my coaches. I committed to my landlord. I committed to the utility company. I've committed, if I have to pay an affiliate fee or some sort of franchise fee, like that, yeah, exactly. The money is not all there. And so what Profit First has you do is separate the money twice a month as it comes in. You just sit down twice a month and put it into these different accounts for some of the major commitments that you've already, uh, that you already have. And so this way then you can actually see what portion of that deposit is your money and then you can make decisions based on that. Um, I, there's a, I mean, there's so many great aspects of Profit First. Like the other one that immediately comes to mind is as I'm separating to my different commitments, these uh, different, uh, we, we call them the essential seven accounts. Mm -hmm. It's based on the smaller plate principle from the original book. Um, as I put money there and then I look to pay my bills, if I don't have enough money left in my operating expense account to pay all those bills, I've now set myself up to at least know my business is telling me I can't afford all those expenses. Yeah. I really should dive in and figure out how do I cut the non-productive ones or the least productive ones compared to the ones that give me the most bang for my buck. Without that effort, how is a gym owner ever going to know if the gym can really sustain all these, these bills and commitments? And all of a sudden they realize, oh crap, I have three subscription services for music. I probably only need one. <laughs> What's this $10 fee I'm paying for a website thing? I don't even know what that is, but they're not going to stop charging you until you call them and cancel, you know? Uh, anyway, so there's so many benefits that come from the system. Yeah, subscriptions are really eye-opening. You know, once you really do the math, they seem small and insignificant on a monthly basis, but when you start looking at the yearly impact of a lot of things, it adds up really quick. Um, so that's, a, that's another thing that's really helpful. Um, do you have any like specific tactical ways to implement profit first that you really like? Because, you know, one of the things that I found is like, I think the book recommends taking out percentages, like every dollar that comes in, a percentage automatically goes out. And, you know, we bank with Bank of America, that that's not easy to do. I don't know if that's even possible to do. So we had to kind of set it up in a way where we want it to be automated and recurring. So I think we do ours monthly where a certain amount will go into uh, one of two separate accounts, but we're like every few months, maybe adjusting that amount a little bit. So, you know, we're like, okay, today we know we can commit to $500 coming out on the first of every month to this, um, you know, insurance account or long-term expense account, profit account. Um, and then over time, that number might jump up to 750 as we see like, okay, the bank balance is still growing. We're still in a good spot. Let's, let's bump this up to 750. Um, but it's not, we didn't find it very easy to do. Have you found any really good tools or, or tactics for that? Um, we have a Google spreadsheet that we've created um, because, yeah, banks don't, won't transfer based on a percentage. Um, and so we use the spreadsheet where you can plug in a couple numbers and based on your 
allocation percentages that profit first the that the cash flow analysis tells you uh, you can calculate what that is and then you we just have you manually go in and make those transfers so it's still um, it's it's automatic but not automated which mm. is still good it's still better than not doing anything so like so, it's so automatic the spreadsheets are telling you the number where what the number needs to be that calculation is automated but you have to go and physically transfer that amount of money yeah so it's like okay. it's automatic i'm going to sit down on the 10th and the 25th uh every month and then i'm going to plug in my numbers that that's an automatic behavior now that i have because of profit first i've used the spreadsheet it tells me what percentage i do and then i go into the bank and physically make those trans transfers mm -hmm. yeah. cool. um so Let's talk a little bit more about the book. Where, um, what's the details of the book? When's it coming out? Uh, what's the name of it? How can people find it? Um, so the launch is January 7th. It is available for, available for pre-order on Amazon right now. It's Profit First for Microgyms. Um, we also have a website, ProfitFirstForMicroGyms.com. Very creative there. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, uh, yeah, that's... You know, if people want to pre-order, that's great. If they want to wait till January 7th, that's great. Um, but the book literally takes Mike's concepts. And in case anyone's worried who's listening, yes, Mike knows that I wrote the book. <laughs> We've collaborated a lot and had a few conversations because I do make some tweaks. And some of them, like, for example, the Essential 7 accounts, he only recommends five. Um, mm -hmm. But with gym owners, I wanted to break it out even more. Um, I also, he has a remove temptation principle where because your tax account and your profit distribution account grow, but only have quarterly distributions, he recommends having an additional two accounts in a separate banking institution. Well, I did a poll with 400 gym owners who know the system and are using it, and only two of them have these accounts. So mm. in, in Profit First for Microgyms, we recommend it, but don't require it where he requires it. So anyways, he knows we're doing the book, but it takes his initial concept of profit first and it's literally written and designed so the micro gym owner can understand how they need to implement it in their gym instead of trying to figure out like, well, how does that industry apply to what I'm doing? Like the mm -hmm. book is purely micro gym focused. So if someone hasn't dove into profit first yet, um, do you think that, and they're a micro gym owner, do they need to read both books or are they going to be fine with just your book? Yeah, mine is a standalone. So if the first introduction to them is my book, they will learn the entire system. Yeah, cool. Um, well, I want to dive into just the book writing process. I always think that's fascinating. A lot of times you come on shows, you're just talking about the book itself, but I always think the book writing process is really interesting, especially if you're owner owning a gym you have your you know separate business um so where are you at in the process it's coming out january 7th but are, is it completely done right now or take us yes. a little bit through like the process of when did you start writing and what does it look like from start to finish got it so not completely done yet um i started writing in uh mike and i penned the agreement for me to write the book uh almost 12 months ago so yeah, about October. Um, I didn't actually start writing until November because I spent the month <laughs> on those like 
oh crap, what did I just commit to? <laughs> um, so I'll admit the burden of the task definitely slowed me down for a month. And then it became, all right, what do I do? How do you, how do you even write a book? So I'm searching out people who've written books and I've done some workshops on how to write books. What I've learned is that there's really two types of books. You have the some people who write the book for a leave behind business card. And if that's your purpose, great. I'm not going to knock them. Um, those can be written a lot faster. In fact, I know a guy who wrote one of those, and he said he spent 30 days outlining it. He spent 30 days writing it. He spent 30 days editing it. He finished it in 90 days. But his purpose was so that he could walk into a place and leave the book. Mm. Not necessarily that people are going to read it. The majority of books don't get read. read. It's crazy. I, on the other hand, wanted to go the other route, which was if I'm going to write a book and it's probably the only book I will write, I want it to mean something. I want someone to read that. I want them to know how much I care about them, and I need that to come through my writing. So it's a totally different approach. I like the core message of Profit First for Microgyms is actually not the system itself, but it's the idea that you deserve to be profitable as a gym owner. And yeah, the technique of Profit First will get you there. But I, the, my main message is I need gym owners to stop falling on the sword and realize that they are changing the fabric of humanity with their services and they deserve to get something in exchange for that. Um, so those are the two types of books and I went to the other route. So started in November, you initially, I had a lot of blog posts and so they kind of ask you to do like an inventory content what subjects have you already written on? What does that look like? And then they walk you through an outline. Uh, like, how do you create an outline? Well, an outline is really awesome. To It's actually super simple. You first start with, well, based on your subject matter. So in my case, Profit First for Microgyms. If I had Bob, the gym owner, come in, what's the first thing that I'm going to tell him? Okay, that's chapter one. What were you going to tell him next? That's chapter two. Like, literally, you just like, oh, good. So I can approach this logically, which is really works for me as an accountant. Mm -hmm. um, then you have the outline, then you can start plugging in. Okay. I have some material already from blog posts where, which chapters would those fit in? And then you just, you get to writing. And um, the first idea is you just have to get a first crappy draft out of the way and you just, you get it down on paper. Then you start editing the crap out of it. What How I long did that realize, take you, the first crappy draft from November to what? Uh, I think I finished my first crappy draft about April. About wow. five months. So, that, so then from there, it's mostly editing, or you still are adding a lot of content to it? I'm not adding a lot of content. It is definitely editing and honing the message. Um, and so that what people don't realize is there are a variety of editors. If you're going to write a book, you want them all involved. Most people just think, oh, there's a copy editor and a typesetter, the guy who gets it ready to actually mm -hmm. look like to be on the right pages for the printing. And they say, oh, yeah, check my grammar. The truth is you want a developmental editor as well. And that is a I didn't even know that existed. Those people will read through your book and tell you, hey, you know what? This concept didn't flow in this chapter. I think it makes more sense in chapter five. Um, or you've overused this word here, try to rewrite it. This paragraph doesn't make any sense. 
like you're not developing your concept. And I am fortunate enough that I have found AJ Harper, who's actually Mike's co-author of all of his books. Um, and she's freaking amazing. And she's uh, ideal percentage that you're hoping people credit to. Um, I, just for those two, no, I mean, from the developmental editing side has been paramount. Um, in fact, if anyone is interested in writing a book, I would Google AJ Harper. She has a course she calls top three book workshop. She mm-hmm. does it every quarter or maybe two to three times a year. And she walks through this entire process that I just described. Like if I just feel like if you're going to write a book, you it's memorialized in paper. You don't want it to be really crappy because everyone's going to remember it. And there's evidence of how crappy it is. Um, anyway, so then from that standpoint, you just, you go back and forth. So we've, we've sent the manuscript back and forth multiple times to hone the message, to cut out parts that didn't make sense, to add a story where a story needed to like really firm up the point, things like that. And so right now, um, I am through kind of the main developmental editing stages. I'm in the feedback stage where I have a list of 10 people that I sent it out to, to get their feedback because they didn't create the baby. They don't have all the stuff that's stuck in my head and they're seeing things that I'm blind to now that I've read the manuscript 20 times. Yeah. Um, and so then they're, they're giving me feedback like, yeah, this chapter, it seemed like something was missing or you jumped from this point to this point and I, w- I, le- I was left feeling confused here. So that's kind of the feedback stage. Um, I'll be done with that in a week. So we'll send it to the copy editor definitely before Thanksgiving. And uh, that takes a week and then we'll have the typesetter and it'll be an official book ready to print. Nice. What's, what's been the hardest stage for you? Editing. Because once you write it once, you're like, Oh good. Normally when we write blog post content, you, you write it once, maybe you read through it once, but people accept it's a blog post. There's going to be some sentences with grammar problems or a word that you misspelled. Uh, it is so much work to then go back through and really look at the sentence yeah. and say, is this the most, is this the, the tightest I can make this sentence? Uh, that's been so hard. I and mean, that's why I've, I've, I'm not exaggerating. I have read through my book 20 times in the writing process. Yeah. And I think that's, that's what's tough too, is in a blog post, you can kind of go start to finish in a, in a very conceptual amount of time. Like you can think about the whole thing. Whereas in a book you're having, even just to read through it, the full thing might take hours or days. So days. you kind of lose, <laughs> lose track of where was this in the, you know, sequence of all the events. And I think that's why you're saying, you know, AJ was so uh, instrumental as having that type of person who can come in with fresh eyes and, and see those sequencing and see kind of the bigger picture. Exactly. With it. Um, that's, that's really cool. Um, well, congrats to you for putting that book together. I know it's no easy task. I, I like what you said about the two different categories. I think I've heard Tim Ferriss say it before where he says like, don't, don't just write a book because you want to write a book, but write a book because you feel like it's more painful to keep those ideas within than it is to get them out of your head. And I think it's also something to be said of you already have a track record of consistent content with blog posts or videos that you've done. It's like, if, if you're waiting for the book to be the reason you're creating content, I'd also think that's a mistake as well. 
Totally. I would say if you think there's a book in you, start writing now. Um, yeah, just do it. 750 words a day, whatever it may be, just set a goal. And maybe you post that content. Maybe it never sees the light of day, but you get into the habit and you can start honing your message to really realize I actually have something in me that I want the world to hear. And it's funny too, like when I first, when I was taking on profit first and AJ introduces this idea of you should have a core message to your book and a promise. I'm like, well, I should just steal mics because I mean, it's profit first and it's just profit first for micro gyms. Um, and that wasn't the case at all. Working with her, she helped me realize that what gym owners needed to hear wasn't um, the core message of profit first, but it was the message. You first have to accept that you deserve to be profitable um, and I will point this out because you and I both know Stu. I had a good conversation with Stu about it. Um, and you know Stu. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, super contrarian. And I loved it because he's like, well, do all gym owners deserve to be profitable? I'm like, <laughs> okay. I get what you're saying. Like, sometimes the ones who are going to take the time to read your book probably do. Yes, exactly. And I told him, I go, look, I get it. Like, some people just don't have the business acumen to really – be a business owner and they just need to go back to being a coach. That's possible. Um, and so, yeah, if you're crappy at running your business, no, you don't deserve to be profitable just because of that. Um, I told them, I go, what I'm, what my message is more of gym owners feel like they don't deserve profitability because of what they're doing. Like they're helping people be healthier. And so most, a lot of people do that for a service. You know, it's a hobby. I'm just passionate about it. I don't need money for it. I'm trying to get past that and say, yes, it's true. You're saving humanity. If if every human being on the planet went to your gym, we could probably eliminate a lot of the insurance burden that we all have to cover. The healthcare system would change drastically. All of those things. And because of that, you deserve to be compensated in exchange for what you're putting out in the world. So that's what I told him I meant by saying, you deserve this. Yeah, I, I really love that that is your message. Um, I think it's it needs to be said a lot more. So I'm, I'm so glad that that is what you guys settled on as really the, the key vision of that book. Um, we, we talk about a similar concept in the, the introductory section of the Rockstar Coaching Course, which is coaches basically have the same opportunities that any doctor would have to change lives. And, and in my opinion, we have more of an opportunity to do it because we have the ability to play offense as opposed to playing defense, which a lot of doctors have to, you know, people are, are coming in with a more proactive mindset. And we also, I think, have a better ability to change quality of life, not just quantity of life. And yes, we don't have to go through the same certifications and schooling that a doctor has, but that doesn't change the opportunity that's sitting there. So I think that's that's really cool that you're um, helping to make that connection for gym owners. Um, where so you talked about where to get the book, but where can people find more about you? And let's say they want to work with you as a gym owner um, on the accounting side. Where can they find you? Um, you can reach us through. <clears throat> excuse me, I've been a little sick, and so I've been trying to hold back a cough. Um, <clears throat> we've uh, they can get us through profitfirstformicrogyms.com. Um, mm -hmm. You'll end up getting connected to me that way. Or insightstax.com um, is another way. Or they can just email me directly if they have questions. 
john, J-O-H-N, at insighttax.com. Um, always happy to help a gym owner answer some questions. Awesome. Well, I appreciate the time, John. This is a great conversation, and I'm sure we'll talk again soon. Thank you. Yeah. Thanks, Andrew.